the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm extraordinarily thrilled to have Jonathan Kellerman with me today. Uh, Jonathan, um, first of all, welcome back, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me again. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure to be part of your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Jonathan, could you tell us your current role? Sure, happy to. Uh, I am currently a partner at StoneTurn. Um, we are a consulting company. Uh, that is predicated upon having a really strong group of very seasoned um, compliance, risk management, corporate governance professionals who have served in-house, uh, who have served in government roles, who have been, um, uh, you know, attorney generals, who have, you know, who have, have been lawyers at big firms. Uh, and, you know, we pride ourselves in our ability to advise our clients on their most complex uh, compliance and risk management uh, matters. Jonathan, on another podcast series, I had the opportunity to visit with you and learn about your journey into compliance. And it's one of the most unique journeys I've, I've heard about. So I was wondering if you could spend a few minutes talking about why compliance for Jonathan. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I can't promise it'll just be a few minutes, as you know, but I'll do my best to keep it uh, brief. Um, Compliance is something that I, I fell into a little bit by accident, but it was a tremendous opportunity uh, that I, you know, was presented with and, and really appreciated the, uh, the chance to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, I was pre-med in college. Uh, I was planning to follow in my father's footsteps and um, become a doctor, uh, did the whole pre-med thing throughout college. But um, right after I graduated, I decided that I didn't want to actually practice medicine. I actually was much more interested in, in the business side of healthcare. Um, so shortly after college, I took a job with a regional consulting firm uh, in the Philadelphia area. Uh, spent four years there um, learning the ins and outs of the healthcare value chain and the delivery model. Uh, got you know a lot of experience working on valuations and, and acquisitions. Um, and, you know, the very, very basics of, uh, of early, early compliance. Um, it was through that job that I had an opportunity to interview with uh, PwC. Um, a friend of mine who was working at the firm I was working at took a job at what, what was then Coopers and Libran. Uh, he called me about six weeks into the job and said, you know, you've got to get over here. You've got to interview. Um, you know, we're really hiring in this healthcare practice, this advisory practice. So I, I did, I, I interviewed. Um, I had a, a tremendous uh, opportunity to meet with um, a future partner of mine, John Dugan. And, um, you know, he ultimately hired me into their um, growing healthcare advisory practice. Uh, and, you know, thus started my 20 year career at PwC. You know, and, and part of this was right place at right time. You know, Philadelphia, where I was, you know, where I was hired and where I was working, was really the early battlegrounds uh, for fraud and abuse and waste investigations and government inquiries uh, into the healthcare space, uh, particularly as it comes to issues of compliance. Uh, it is a hotbed for academic medical centers, uh, for healthcare in general. Uh, and those were the early days when the government was investigating 
you know, hospitals like the University of Pennsylvania, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, and other, you know, health systems in the area. And those hospitals and health systems ultimately had settlement agreements with the government. And those were the first ones to really reach those type of settlement agreements. And the requirements associated with those uh, settlement agreements really were focused on a couple key things. One was to have a full-time dedicated compliance officer. This concept of compliance officer, while not new in other industries like banking and financial services, et cetera, was still relatively new in, in healthcare. Uh, so now you have this you know, creation of this new role, a compliance officer, and the requirements in these CIAs and this corporate integrity agreements uh, for having effective compliance programs that were defined, you know, by federal sentencing guidelines and, you know, other industry guidelines. And this opened up a door, you know, for consultants like ourselves to be able to help these companies and advise them on their strategy on compliance, on the selection of compliance resources, and on executing on the effective compliance program, everything from training through audits, uh, through policies and procedures and processes, et cetera. So we were at the right place at the right time. We recognized an opportunity and we, and we started a healthcare compliance practice, you know, the first really in the industry. And we were at the right place, right time and took advantage of that. And we were able to grow what was then uh, the leading consulting practice that helped healthcare providers in particular uh, with their, um, you know, with their complex compliance challenges. And what was interesting was, you know, at that point, you know, I was working with, um, you know, one partner, his name was Brent Saunders. You, everyone might know him or should know him. Um, he was a partner at PwC with whom I had the great fortune to work with, um, a, a great partner and a great advisor and a great friend of mine. Um, he had this vision that, or, you know, this foresight that the compliance winds were changing and that we were going to, there was going to be a shift from the provider side into the pharmaceutical and life sciences side. And he was spot on. So a, a small group of us broke off from the kind of the healthcare provider side, went over to the pharmaceutical side and basically took the model of what we had built for provider for compliance. And, um, you know, under his direction, we rebuilt, you know, a brand new compliance focused practice um, that really helped, that was intended to help um, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, med device companies with a wide array of compliance challenges as they were now coming under investigation. So when the early ones hit, whether it was TAP or Bayer or Pfizer, we were front and center ready to go with a, you know, a whole suite of compliance ready solutions. Again, everything from building out compliance programs to helping them conduct their audits to serving as um, independent review organizations under their corporate integrity agreements, uh, policy design, process design, training, et cetera, we were front and center. And that really served as the foundation from which, you know, we ultimately grew the industry's largest global uh, pharmaceutical and life sciences practice. And I had the good fortune of being one of the partners to co-lead that, uh, that effort in the industry. And, you know, it was then working through um, you know, that practice and having the chance to really mentor under and, and work with Brent, um, that eventually I got my chance to go in-house. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's kind of how I got into compliance. It wasn't necessarily intentional, uh, but certainly recognized uh, very unique opportunities when the uh, opportunity came knocking, opened those doors, ran right through them, and, 
you know, very proud of the work that uh, my partners and I really did to build, um, you know, the premier consulting practice at that time. Jonathan, one of the things that I find so interesting about your story is obviously you're not a lawyer, or if it's not obvious, you're not a lawyer, but you <laughs> we'll came to the CCO now. chair specifically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you eventually moved to the CCO chair. And what I wanted to ask you is how do you feel like your background in consulting and really the business side, your interest in the business side of healthcare and compliance really helped inform uh, the way you looked at compliance as opposed to someone like me who has a little more legal training that might look at and it is more in terms of rules and regulations. Did you see it kind of from day one as really a business process overlaid with some regulations you had to require with and, and a little bit about that experience for you? Absolutely. You know, and again, this is no knock on lawyers. Um, you know, one of one of my more recent mentors, Bob Bailey, who was the general counsel at Allergan, with whom I worked very, very closely with uh, during my tenure in the global chief compliance officer chair, always said, lawyers aren't good executors. And, you know, and, and, and in reality, he's right. One of the one of the advantages I believe that I brought to the table was that, uh, you know, I'm a strong executor. I'm, a, I'm someone who can operationalize, who can envision process controls and how they work together, uh, who can fix things that are broken, who can problem solve at a complex level um, and can build things that need to be built from the ground up or that need to be rebuilt if they're if they're not functioning at their um, you know, maximum capacity. And to be honest, that was one of the reasons why Brent wanted to bring me on board, not just because I was a, an expert in compliance and because I was a, a partner at PwC, but because um, I had worked, you know, in, in this consulting environment where I was required to bring multiple skill sets to the table, whether it was problem solving, whether it was process work, operational work, uh, whether it was bringing together multiple uh, skill sets and capabilities across the value chain, um, you know, it, it was, you know, a requirement basically to be able to come in and not only build something from the ground up, but also to be able to fix things that are broken, to advise on corporate strategy, uh, to help with, you know, key corporate initiatives. And, you know, one of the things Brent said to me was one of the reasons why I hired you was not because you're a compliance expert, but because you were a partner who led this advisory practice and really have that ability to help out in many different areas. So, you know, and as I look at where compliance needs to grow to, I believe it's a fundamental requirement for compliance officers to have an operational spin uh, or focus, to have that ability uh, to be a, a problem solver, to have that ability to fix things that are broken, to be able to design process and implement those, um, working very closely with the business as your as your business partner. So, um, yeah, that, that was absolutely an advantage for me coming into this, you know, really tremendous opportunity uh, to have that CCO chair at Allergan. When you did have or did move into that CCO chair, you also moved on to the executive leadership team. At Allergan, and I was wondering if you'd give a few words about uh, some some of the key differences you saw in being a CCO and being a member of the executive leadership team, and how perhaps your background uh, informed your views as an ELT member. Yes, it, it, you know it's interesting. You know, on my first day, Brent had said to me, "The biggest challenge I'm going to face uh, moving in house after spending 20 some years." in a consulting world, you know, at least half of that as a partner, was that I'd have to learn how to be an executive. Um, and it was very different than being a partner. While there were a lot of lessons learned and a lot of skill sets and capabilities that would uh, help me in that transition, 
he said it would be very different to learn how to be an executive at a, at a, at a company. And he was absolutely right. It did take some time for me to get my legs under me in terms of what it really meant to be an executive, to be part of a, a 10 person team that really was responsible for not only shareholder driving shareholder value, but responsible for all of our employees, responsible for uh, our corporate strategy, responsible for ensuring that we were bringing novel uh, medicines and opportunities to, to patients and to our customers. Um, doing it in a responsible way. And thinking like an executive is very different than thinking like a partner where I was one of 2,500 partners and had a kind of a minimal voice. Here I was one of 10 executives on the leadership team and I needed to have a voice. I needed to have a, you know, a, an opinion, a perspective uh, and something that added value. And um, you know, getting comfortable finding my voice and finding that area where I could add the most value was part of that transition, was part of that growth for me. And, you know, it was a unique challenge, but one that, you know, ultimately with the guidance and support of my other ELT members, uh, really felt that I grew into, um, you know, pretty quickly. Jonathan, I'd now like to change the focus a little bit to yeah. the evolution of compliance programs that you have observed. It has been my observation that you have been on the forefront of the evolution of compliance programs uh, in healthcare, in life sciences, in pharmaceuticals. But what have you seen from the regulators, whether it be the Department of Justice, OIG, uh, DDH, uh, ar around their expectations on compliance? Well, I think the, the, the change has been slow, um, but we're starting to see a, a more progressive way of looking at compliance uh, by the regulators. Um, you know, and I think there's a couple areas you can point to where you can see that that evolution, that progression. Uh, you know, in 2020, uh, the DOJ published new guidelines and what defines an effective compliance program. In those guidelines, they you know they reference uh, data analytics and, and as part of uh, an effective monitoring program, and that certainly um, not only sets a new standard and set of expectations but really is a, is a demonstrated way to show that they are thinking more progressively than the traditional way of thinking about compliance. You know, you can look at, you know, the SEC and the DOJ in the way they're treating, um, you know, investigations and companies that are under investigation, uh, this whole voluntary disclosure protocols and actually giving credit to companies that have been responsible, that have been good corporate citizens, that have, um, you know, been very helpful and supportive during these investigations and were responsible enough to come forward. And I think giving credit uh, to companies that have effective compliance programs that took ownership and accountability and were supportive in the process, I think is a very uh, progressive and important way uh, to really show that growth and change. The, the challenge has always been that traditional compliance has been uh, somewhat limited by um, you know, very rigid standards uh, around, you know, this audit mentality. It's very focused on, or it had been very focused on, you know, looking backwards retroactively, uh, looking at transactions almost in silos as opposed to holistically, um, you know, looking at a swatch of time as opposed to looking at data over time um, and telling people what they did right or wrong six months ago or 12 months ago. That's been the kind of fundamental um, you know, engine behind traditional compliance programs. And, you know, in my opinion, those have also been what's limited compliance programs for being truly effective. And why I think there is the, not only is there a beginning now of a shift 
towards more proactive and, and data analytic based uh, compliance programs. Uh, but I, I believe that's the, you know, the cornerstone of what the future of compliance is going to look like. And you actually, uh, one of the things that intrigued me about your story is you've really taken that data analytics and you've been on the forefront of that in-house. I was wondering if you could describe what you and your team were able to create at Allergan, sort of the genesis of it, how you were able to use it, and really uh, even sort of beyond compliance in your experience in, in creating a data analytics program for the company. Yeah, first and foremost, I was very fortunate to work for a company with a CEO that was very uh, progressive, uh, that stressed innovation, that challenged us to challenge the norms um, and, and told us to take chances and not be afraid to make mistakes and do things differently. Uh, one of the reasons why I took the, uh, the job uh, was to be able to use it as a platform to advance compliance at the company and really start to build a, um, you know, a roadmap for what good, effective compliance looks like for the industry. And, um, you know, this really gave me a, a tremendous platform to do that, to have a boss that not only supported it, but, but really encouraged it. Uh, and I had a great team uh, working with me, um, you know, great directors and, and uh, executive directors who were very much aligned with this vision of how we would actually use the robust data that we already owned and had access to, to help us be more directional about risk, to help us give us real-time insights uh, into performance against our standards, to look for outliers against those standards. So real quick, as soon as I got on board, one of the things that I committed to the board of directors was that we were going to do compliance differently, that we weren't going to have a traditional uh, audit-based uh, compliance program, that we were going to shift into a much more predictive model, a much more analytical model that let the data really speak for where risk not only is today, not looking backwards, but where the risk was going to be in the future based on these analytics. So, um, you know, over a period of a couple of years, we were able to build a very progressive and innovative uh, data analytics platform that allowed us to access all of this robust data we had from disparate systems, bring this data into a centralized hub, standardize this data, we put a risk matrix on top of the data platform that was unique for either geographies or product types or program types. Um, you know, we could pull levers in many different ways. And then once we had that data and that risk scoring based upon this compliance matrix, this risk matrix, we were able to write and run algorithms against the data that actually correlated data from disparate sources together as opposed to looking at data in a, uh, in a silo. Traditional analytics really looked at data individually. They would look at sales transactions and run some metrics against those. They would look at you know, prescriptions and they would run some data against those. This analytics platform that my team and I built really looked at things in its totality and looked at things holistically. We would run an algorithm that would take sales data and prescription data and samples data it could take unstructured data as well. We'd, we'd analyze that data together to actually look at where there could be outliers against our standards today, not six months ago, but today, and then allowed us to then take all these results and feed them back into the system and now create a, um, you know, a feedback loop that allowed us to then look at trends over time and say, okay, based upon what we're doing, whether we're launching a new product, we have a new indication, 
um, you know, we acquired, uh, you know, a new technology, whatever that, you know, that driving force was, we can actually be more predictive about where the risk was going to be and where we could plan for how we would build the right controls, where we can plan for putting our resources in a productive way, and where we can plan for making sure that we have the right infrastructure from a process perspective to anticipate the risk and avoid risk incidences from occurring in the first place. And we were able to build this, this platform out, uh, roll it out throughout the US, roll it out in, in key countries like China and Brazil and, and Russia, uh, and be able to then roll that out in other countries as well. And it really became the engine for our compliance program. And it really informed almost everything that we did um, and it was something that the board loved, uh, the regulators that we, we showed it to, they loved it as well. Um, and it provided, you know, very tangible insights, not only on how we were doing from a compliance perspective, but it gave valuable business intelligence back to the business on how they were performing against their standards as well. If they were doing new marketing campaigns, new promotional activity, new contract types, this data not only uh, informed compliance and risk management, but it informed how their business was running overall. And they loved to get that feedback. So it was another perspective that correlated these data points together. And, you know, in doing so, we were providing value beyond just compliance to the business. We were now helping them meet their goals, meet their objectives, and helping them be successful. And that's where I think compliance needs to be in the future, not just the arbiter of what ethics is and, and what, you know, what is right and what is wrong, but actually an enabler of business success. And I think the, the future compliance must embrace that for it to be relevant, you know, going forward. Uh, one of my taglines is uh, effective compliance equates to more efficient business processes, which equates to greater ROI. It sounds like it's another way of, uh, saying that uh, and if not I may just adopt your way of saying it. Um, where do you see uh, uh, some other areas that that really compliance uh, would be open to improvement in addition to use of data and data analytics? Yeah I, I, again I think I think for the future of compliance and for compliance professionals I think it's important to kind of rethink our function. It's, it's important to rethink how we bring value to a business. And I think that compliance programs that limit themselves to just the, the standard practice of, you know, managing risk through policies and, and audits and things like that really, um, you know, face the risk of, of being irrelevant in their companies and, and really not providing a lot of value. Uh, for me, the kind of the next generation of compliance officers that I'm hoping to help influence and the next generation of compliance programs um, will it not only embrace this concept of data analytics to be more predictive about, you know, compliance risk, but also embrace other key areas. One of them is operational excellence. Um, you know, if you build a compliance function the right way, and if you bring on the right talent and the right people, you can actually add a lot of value to the business um, and to the company itself by helping them solve for complex business problems, uh, operational challenges, inefficiencies that are naturally built into the pharma value chain. For example, one of the, you know, one of the challenges we had, the, you know, my, you know, in my first week on the job was um, we had a promotional material review we called MLRC. It really involved the medical, legal, regulatory, and compliance review of all, all materials and programs and websites, et cetera, 
it was very cumbersome. It was redundant. It, 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 it uh, had very slow turnaround times uh, and the cycle times were not optimized in any way. Uh, it was bureaucratic and ultimately it did not serve a valuable purpose. So we basically deconstructed this whole process and then rebuilt it in a way that was you know, much more productive uh, much less reliant on, um, you know, the redundant resources. We improved cycle time by over 30%. Uh, we made it much more efficient and impactful. And when you're turning out things on a quicker basis, you're actually providing an engine to the business to, to actually meet their objectives and meet their goals in a much more productive way. But that takes a very different skill set. That takes critical thinkers who know, understand process and understand, um, you know, how to map a process, how to redesign a process, how to think critically about things like cycle time and controls and, and resource allocations. But if you can do that, you actually make yourself, you, you allow yourself an opportunity to not only build in the right risk management controls, the right compliance controls, but you do so in a manner that actually makes process much more effective for the business. Again, you're adding value into that business. Um, you know, so that's, that's another area where I think compliance and compliance professionals really need to be thinking about what, you know, how can I be more effective in the future? You know, another area that is that is fast emerging and, and certainly has been accelerated by the, the COVID pandemic is in this area of digital transformation. Every company speaks about a digital transformation and everyone does it to some extent. And it's really how to better utilize digital platforms, social media uh, and data in a way that improves the engagement with customers, with patients, with third parties, et cetera. And in doing so, it opens up a new and different way of, of thinking about you know, our traditional engagements and uh, using these advanced technologies and using this data and using these digital platforms creates a, a, a new category of risk and a new type of risk, but it also puts pressure on a company to do things very fast and very efficiently and to have very quick, you know, right, right then and there turnaround time. And, you know, again, it, again, it's bringing that compliance mindset with a business operations mindset. How do you build out an infrastructure that actually enables that to happen? And that's something that we did uh, at Allergan. My team and I were able to kind of, we, we started in our medical aesthetics business where we basically rebuilt a, a new infrastructure uh, around the use of digital platforms, advanced technology, data, et cetera, that actually looked very different from the traditional pharma model that allowed the, the company to work almost real time in those platforms. And it truly helped kind of revolutionize, you know, how the business worked, but also how it maintained, you know, a, um, its risk tolerance and its risk profile. So again, I think there's, a, there's areas where compliance needs to find its ability to add value, to, to really redefine its relevancy going forward, because I really truly believe that the traditional model that's a very audit focused model is very limited in, in its value. It seems like to me the skill sets you've described are never taught in law school, which would lead me to opine perhaps there's a different skill set needed in the compliance function in 2025 and beyond. What do you see in the broader compliance function? What are some of the other skill sets or other uh, perhaps professional disciplines you might want to have if in 2025 or 2030 you were asked to move back to the CCO chair? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think the, the model of the compliance profile, the compliance professional profile needs to change. You're always going to need to have 
individuals that understand the compliance environment, particularly in the sector that you work in. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you, you're, the profile of a, a really successful compliance organization going forward will, will obviously have individuals that have tremendous uh, and really strong uh, business partnership skills that um, have worked in the business, that have that clout and credibility uh, to be able to say, you know, I either carried a bag, you know, there were many people on my team that actually worked in, um, you know, our commercial marketing teams or our sales teams. Uh, my head of R&D, she came from 17 plus years um, as the, you know, the lead for uh, operations for R&D. She had no compliance background. And, but what she did know how to do was work with all the business leaders in R&D to identify, you know, process inefficiencies, how to ensure the right controls were in place, how to speak their language and earn their trust and respect. So I think you have to have a profile of individuals that have worked in the business, speak that language, have that trust and credibility. And then you have to think outside the box. I mean, one of the things that we did is we hired a couple individuals who had very little pharma background, but were experts in the area of social media, digital, um, and in, in the data area, particularly in using those advanced technologies. And they brought a very unique outside perspective in how to think about leveraging these technologies, leveraging these digital platforms, leveraging social media in a way that you could be compliant, but in a way that actually helped the business. So I can teach anyone compliance and a good compliance officer can do that as well. Um, but you can't teach these very valuable skill sets that are very different. We brought on data scientists and, and data analytics professionals um, who had didn't necessarily have a lot of pharma background, but had a really strong understanding of how to make the data work for us and how to, how to correlate that data, how to write those algorithms, run those algorithms that would allow us to be more predictive about risk. Uh, we brought on a training expert who had a foundational uh, appreciation and understanding of the more advanced uh, adult learning technologies and methodologies. And we completely did a 180 on how we did compliance training uh, in the organization that then served as a model for how the company was going to revise how it did its training as well. And it really was, uh, you know, kind of an outside the box hire in the sense that she brought very different and unique perspectives to how effective training, you know, using gamification theories and, you know, using, you know, live interactions and technologies to really make training stickier, to make it more impactful. So I think going forward, a really effective and successful compliance organization will have professionals that look a little less like our traditional compliance professionals and more like, um, you know, these unique skill sets around business operations and operations improvement, uh, around digital and technology, around data, uh, around advanced training techniques and methodologies. Those people are gonna be able to bring fresh and unique skills and ideas um, to really enhance the value of what compliance can do and offer to the business. Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near to the end of our time, but before we get to the end, I have a bonus question for you. And yes. you're a member, uh, actually a board member of the American Association for Suicide Prevention. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, why are you so passionate about this mental health care topic? Well, first and foremost, I have three amazing children and you know, I see the struggles and, and challenges they go through every day. And um, I realize that mental health, um, unlike physical health, does not get the attention that it needs uh, in the schools, uh, in our communities. Uh, there are uh, myths and stereotypes that need to be battled 
so that our children and, and our next generation uh, can have a healthier view of mental health and mental health treatment. Again, I was very fortunate to work for a company in Allergan uh, that you know, had products and therapeutic areas um, in the mental health space um, while working you know, on you know, a product launch for one of our mental health products. I really had, an I had a unique opportunity to meet some, some wonderful people who advocate for mental health uh, and the importance of mental health, both you know, politically and legislatively and, and policy-wise and investment-wise. And that's where I met some of the members of the, um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I got involved in the organization, volunteered my time on community walks, and I served as the liaison between Allergan, who was a big supporter of the AFSP um, and the and the organization itself. And you know, after a couple of years, they they asked me to join their national board, and I, I'm just starting my second term now. Uh, and it is an absolutely amazing organization that really dedicates its time to trying to think of new and better ways to educate Americans and people on the importance of mental health, uh, on how to have difficult conversations, what signs people should look for. And it makes it much more practical and it, it demystifies it and takes some of the stereotypes and taboos away from it. And it really elevates the, the personal side of it. And um, you know, the people that I work with, I'm, I'm humbled to work with such uh, amazing advocates for mental health and suicide prevention. Uh, so it's been a passion of mine now, and you know I continue to uh, I look forward to continuing to support the organization. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, now we are at the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted to follow up with you on any of the topics we've touched on or any of your remarks today. How could they do so? Uh, they can feel free to reach out to me either through any of my social media. Um, you know, Twitter or, or my Instagram page. Um, they can uh, email me at jkellerman at stoneturn.com. Um, they can call me on my cell phone or text me anytime, 973-610-5260. Um, anytime anyone wants to run ideas by me or, or just want a sounding board or get some guidance, um, this is what I love to do. I love to help uh, advise uh, peers and, and work with others in this, uh, in this sector to really advance uh, compliance in a much more progressive and impact, impactful way. Well, Jonathan, as always, I greatly enjoy our conversations and looking forward to continuing them. Tom, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate this opportunity and the platform to have this you know, valuable discussion with you. Thank you very much. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.